The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it news some people will call you mad some people will call you heroes uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum it's uh, it's an amazing project to to pull together from literally from scratch and views you've got to pick yourself up dust yourself off and learn from that experience and that's not an easy thing to do peter learning from your own failure so why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds aviation and the aerospace industry Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And this is the 300th episode. I've got a special guest this episode, and that's Brendan Dare. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Dave. How are you? Great, great. How are you? Uh, pretty good, thank you. Yeah, end of another day. Yep. It's. Uh, I just can't believe it's the three hundredth episode of the of the series. It's incredible. Um, and I'm I'm really really stoked to have you on as the as the guest because, you know, you've got a, a really interesting story to tell with your Mustang. Um, 
I want to start just by asking you, what's your first memory of ever seeing a P-51 Mustang? Oh, <laughs> strangely, I think it was, um, I, I, I do remember seeing um, the mobile one at Whanganui Airport. Oh, yes. Yep, yep. Uh, CCG. Yeah, long, long, long time ago. I probably would have been a kid, um, right. almost certainly. And I can remember, I actually had a photo of it somewhere I took at the time um, on a box brownie of, uh, the. I think, pretty sure it was the mobile one at uh, Whanganui Airport. And I think sometime later on, or much later on, obviously, I saw um, Graham Bethel's one when it was operating, I think, at Taupo, if I remember correctly. But yeah, okay. a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, an interesting history, the Mustangs in New Zealand, the, the fact that we had 30 of them come at the end of the war. And that one that you saw, uh, the mobile one, was ZK CCG, but it had been one of our Territorial Air Force ones, and the same as yours. So it was a brethren of your one, I guess. Yeah, very that... much so. Um, I can't remember the serial of it, but... Um... I think there's more connections than that because uh, bits and pieces of the different aircraft got swapped around. Right. I think right. the mobile Mustang was a combination of a fuselage and another set of wings from another aircraft. So, yeah, correct, correct. And the fuselage, I think, is uh, two five one seven. Um, yes. And that's that's the one that's now with Kermit Weeks and flying as Cripes of Mighty the Third. Yes, and I think if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. I think our outer wings are two five one two four one sevens. Two four, sorry, yeah, two four, not two five. Sorry. Uh yeah. Um so uh, yeah, interesting. There's there's bits of that aircraft on your aircraft, which is quite quite neat. Um, yeah, and we we've got bits of some of the other ones as well, of course, in our stash of bits and pieces uh, now as well. So we've got bits and pieces of quite a few of them. Right, right. So what was what's your first memory of ever seeing John Smith's one? Did did you go and visit him when back in the day, or was it? Yeah, only... I went. I went to visit John four times actually. Um, yeah. When I think back on it, first time was in nineteen. I better get this right. Uh, it was nineteen seventy six. Okay. Um, because um, my wife and I were on our honeymoon and we headed down the South Island, and of course decided it would be a good idea to stop there so uh, <laughs> right. i took a photograph of front of the of her in front of the mosquito and because in those days it was outside with some corrugated iron over the wings to give it a bit of protection so right. i certainly didn't i didn't see the mustang i only saw the mosquito that time and i i think the next time i went back was probably maybe 15 20 years later and and I have a distinct memory of seeing the Mustang over the back of the shed. Mm -hmm. It was okay. sort of not where it was when we went to get it, but um, I'm not sure whether it had been moved around or it was just my imagination. Right. Okay. Um, can we get? Could you give a, a potted history of that Mustang from when it came to New Zealand its service and how it ended up with John? Yeah, well, I think as you indicated, we, we we had actually plans to get 360 Mustangs, I think it was, to replace the Corsairs, yep. and we'd ordered 170 of them. And the first 30 uh, were produced in July 45, put on the boat at Oakland, uh, about one day or two days, depending on your time zone, before the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. So by the time that ship 
the Dominion Park arrived in Auckland, the war was well over. Hmm. Um, you know, the three-week voyage or whatever it was, the, the war was weeks over. And um, the, the RNZF was faced with the issue. They had an aircraft that they no longer needed. Right. Um, they were in the process then of bringing leftover aircraft back from the Pacific or scrapping them on site or whatever. Uh, so they ended up with 30 Mustangs. They solved one of the problems by dropping one of them on the wharf. Oh. Um, they were unloading the ship. So one of the aircraft never never proceeded beyond the wharf. It, it got smashed up and scrapped at that point. Um, okay. So in fact, only 29 uh, went into storage, I think initially at uh, Hobsonville in 1945. And then a little while later, I'm not sure at what time frame, but a little while later, they decided to move them to Ardmore because right. I guess space was at a premium at uh, Hobsonville. And they then, it wasn't until 1952 that the first of them was bought out of storage. The chief of the Air Force at the time was a great fan of what the Australians were doing with the Citizen Air Force squadrons. Yes. Yep. And we already had our Territorial Air Force squadrons, so they decided to allocate, I think, five of the Mustangs to each of the four squadrons. Now, our aircraft, 2423, wasn't in that initial allocation it was moved down to, after reassembly, it was moved down to Rukahia mm -hmm. and put in storage there. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm not exactly sure physically where, but possibly, quite possibly, out amongst the Kitty Hawks and Corsairs. I don't honestly know. Right. I've never seen photographs of it at uh, Rukahia. And so it was, in fact, one of the last Mustangs bought into service. It was bought in to replace one of the Ohakia ones, I think possibly the one that was lost at Raumai. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. So I think it was 1955 when it came into service, or 54 at the earliest. Um, and by 1955, as you know, the territorial Mustangs uh, were really at the end of their service. The uh, accident at Harewood, where one of them and I can't remember the serial number, one of them lost uh, an undercarriage leg. It snapped off at the pivot point. Um, that was the final straw. And after that, the Air Force decided to uh, withdraw them. Um, they decided to keep four of them active at Ohakia. And 2423 was one of those four. And one of the fortuitous things uh, for us really was that as part of that decision to keep them in service, they replaced all the undercarriage legs and all the undercarriage pivots and bushes with brand new heavy duty ones. Oh, okay. So it's probable that our aircraft had probably only done 10 or 12, maybe 15 landings on the undercarriage um, gear uh, okay. when it was retired, uh, which sort of explains why there was zero wear on the undercarriage pivots or bushes or anything. Right. So 2423 was. Um, after the territorial squadrons, it went from number two squadron, it was assigned to 42 squadron. Yep. And it was one of four they kept on for target towing. Uh, and that's why it survived a little bit longer, those ones that were at Ohakia. And in fact, 2423 was the last of the Mustangs. It performed the last flight. When it was put into storage, it went from Ohakia to Woodburn on the 30th of May, 1957. It was okay. the last... Mustang, last flight, and very much the end of that particular um, low-key era. 
Wow. So it was uh, towing targets uh, for the vampires at that time. Yeah. Um, have you have you actually come across anyone since you've had the Mustang that remembers flying vampires and, and firing at it? Or No, not really. You, you sort of got to think that the time scale now is, um, you know, so long ago. Uh, yes. It seems yeah. like for us, it seems like recent history, but it's a really, really long time ago. That is, and yeah. Even a 25-year-old vampire pilot in 1955 would be a good age now. Yeah, well, that's true. That Yeah, they'd be getting their 90 or, or around yeah. that. So, yeah. so, no, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, there's interesting – and I've got all the, the 42 Squadron records now, courtesy of the Air Force Museum, and I've still got a job. I've worked to go through all of those and just pin down exactly what they did do. Right. Um, I know one of the Mustangs uh, was hit by a vampire. He, he missed his target and hit the Mustang. Oh, wow. And okay. put a cannon shell through the main spar. Uh, and the, the aircraft got back to Ahakia, right? But that, that it never flew again. Oh, okay, right. Uh, yeah, they had an interesting thing. But what happened to it after that was in, in 1955, they started being put into long-term storage. And when 2423 got there, the rest of them were already there at Woodburn. Right. But they were still, uh, the instruction at the time was still to put them into long-term storage. Okay. So the nice thing about that was having flown a total of 261 hours and 55 minutes, they went through the process of inhibiting our aircraft's engine and the fuel tanks and a lot of the other systems on the aircraft uh, in preparation for an uncertain period of uh, storage. Right. Um, it just Interesting that really only a few months later they pulled the plug on that idea and uh, sold them off surplus uh, through the government stores board. And I think, as most people know, um, although most of them were purchased by ANSA, I think about a total of about five of them were um, sold technically sold to individuals. Right. But I think of those individuals, two of them never turned up to pick them up and pay the money. And so those ones were resold to answer. And I think you've got um, the mobile Mustang, Peter Coleman's one. And of course, our one went to Bill Ruffle. Right. Yep. Yeah, he had plans to um, build a new um, racing yacht, uh, racing uh, boat and use the Merlin as the engine instead of the Allison that he was uh, using at that time. Now the boat that we're talking about was like a they called it a tunnel hull, wasn't it? I think. Um yeah, racing hydroplane, I think. I, I remember hmm. as a kid seeing them on uh Wanganui River uh racing. And uh, I think Bill's uh Lynn Southwood was um one of the the top ones, and Bill Ruffle yep. uh was one of the other top ones, and I think they competed quite a bit between them. Um, yes. Yep. Lynn Southwood's one was called Red Devil, I seem to remember. Uh Redhead, I think. Redhead, that's it. Yeah, redhead. No, yeah. Better, better memory than me, Dave. <laughs> well, my my dad used to talk about it all the time because he was very much into the model power boats, and they used to build replicas, you know, model replicas and race them of those big ones from the from those glory days. So, uh, and he actually knew quite well um, Tony Rutledge, who was his father, was one of the two that worked on that boat. That's uh, right. Yeah, I think. Um, Rutledge and uh, Ruffle were partners in the boat and mm. in, in the original boat, True Gen, which was the Allison-powered one. Yeah. Um, and I think he had he had a plan as well, I was told, by one of the family to um, 
use the cockpit section of the Mustang as the main, um, you know, cockpit on the racing hydroplane. And that's allegedly why some of the holes were cut into the side of the fuselage to see what was there. Right, right, and yeah. They quickly found that it wasn't going to work. So, <laughs> And in yeah. the end, of course, Bill uh, didn't proceed with these plans and the aircraft ended up with John Smith uh, and stayed with John. I think John got it in 1964 and, of course, he kept it um, until his passing in 2019. Yeah, so, I mean, the John Smith collection is something that's phenomenal, really, Um I think most of us enthusiasts knew about it. Um, some of us, like you and I, went to visit him uh, at some point and had a look at his collection. Um, he had the Mosquito there. He had the Mustang there, two P40s, various bits of Vampire uh, and Harvard and what else did he have there? The Hudson. Um, all this stuff just either crammed into his shed or around his, his property. Um, and... Uh, it was just, it was like an Aladdin's cave, really, wasn't it? Um, yeah, and, and... I, I think you couldn't, um, certainly the the last time I vis visited John, I think would have been in the late, you know, 2019, 2020. You yeah. couldn't see inside the shed beyond the nose of the mosquito. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was just so much stuff in there. And it wasn't just aeroplane stuff. It was everything under the sun. Um, but... You know, at, at the end of the day, um, you, we've ended up, or well, New Zealand's ended up with a magnificent collection of aircraft um, in different parts of the country that have come out of his stewardship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, what what's happened to those aircraft at uh, uh, Omaka with the Mosquito and the P-40N uh, and the, um, uh, the Tiger Moth from his collection? I mean, the Tiger Moth's taxiing around, and it's, it looks exactly how it was when he used to fly it. Um, the Mosquito's running its engines, and the uh, the uh, P-40's on display looking exactly how it would have, you know, on the front line. Um, just incredible, incredible museum pieces. Yeah, I, I think you, you've just got to um, pinch yourself about what he's done for the country. It, yeah. It's funny, one of those, actually had somebody at the uh, visiting the hangar the other day and was lamenting that he never um, saw John's collection or never met John. And the principal reason was he couldn't find the place. Right. <laughs> um, he tried a couple of times to um, work out where it was. And, and if you've been there, you know, um, particularly yep. when all the trees were there, it was impossible to know that that was the driveway of such a treasure trove, uh, unless you had some um, inside knowledge. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. And he was one of those guys that didn't really... Uh, he didn't court any publicity. He didn't like publicity. He didn't really like people turning up. But once they turned up there, he liked to keep them talking. So, um, and eventually, you know, if he liked you, he'd let you in, into the shed and show you around. So, uh, yeah. Last time I last time um, I met well, we met with him with Sean Parrott and I went to see him, and Bill Reed had kindly rung him up in advance. Yeah, which helped immensely. And we turned up in Bill's car. And uh, we got very royal uh, treatment. Um, oh, right. He was very, he talked about his growing up in England. And of course, he, he was quick to tell me that he didn't like Spitfires. He liked Hurricanes. So <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> he put me in the place quite quickly and, uh, you know, just put me um, a few rungs down. <laughs> 
No, but he was great. He, once he got talking and particularly the radio stuff, he was really interested in radio stuff. And, uh, you know, he wanted to know what radio we had and what was radio was in the Spitfire. And I think I got it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> TR 1143. And he would talk about that. And then he just remind me he preferred hurricanes. And yeah. um, we had quite a good conversation. Uh, and in fact, we ran out of time at the end. We could have stayed a lot longer, but we had to uh, uh, make a connection back or something. I can't remember. Right, right. So um, just for the listeners who aren't aware, you also own a Spitfire. Um, you've got an Avenger and you've got a Harvard in your hangar as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, all of which are technically flyable. Right now, the Avenger Plonky has is, is um, had an engine change. Uh, yeah, it's not far away now, Dave. We've got the yeah. engine up on the aeroplane and I think um, possibly tomorrow afternoon they'll put, um, remount the propeller. Oh right, fantastic! Uh, yeah, so there's still a bit of bit more plumbing work to be done, but I don't think we're too far from. Um, you know, we, we we I certainly feel like we're on track for Wanaka anyway. So um, there's always little things that can trip you up, but so far I think we've got everything under control. Excellent, excellent, and and now you've got this uh, this Mustang in your hangar as well, which uh, in, in your collection. And um, tell me about. Uh, the process of procuring it and the restoration of this Mustang, because it's one of the most phenomenal restorations that's ever taken place in this country, I think, in terms of how fast and how incredibly original it is. Yeah, well, I think um, you go back to John Smith. He he he, he dealt us some very friendly cards. Um, yeah. You know, I think when, um, I guess it just came out of a conversation I had with Bill Reed. Um you know, who was very close to the family and, and, and providing them with really good, solid advice. Because, you know, the family had, and particularly George, I think, had a great concern to see that John's wishes uh, were followed, yep. which was pretty much of the aircraft stay local. Now, local is an interesting definition, but um, certainly stay in New Zealand. And, and in particular... There yep. seemed to be a view that the Mustang was the one that should fly. Um, oh, I know the Harvard will and the Tiger Moth potentially could. Yeah. It seemed to be his thinking or their thinking the Mustang had the potential to fly again. Yeah. So Bill had discussed this with the family and just mentioned it to me in a conversation I had with him. And it struck me as, you know, having been through the Spitfire process, we were quite able to take on a Mustang. Never done one before, but um, we'd never done a Spitfire before. No. Um, so we went down, uh, Brian Harris, uh, the engineer, one of the engineers, and I went down and had a good look. Brian went through it with a fine tooth comb. I just stood there and looked and took photos. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we went and had a good look at it and, you know, assessed that, it was pretty much all there. And when once we'd gone round through the shed and seen the outer wings and the radiator um, and located the propeller, you know, we had a good sense that there was a good basis for a restoration. We had a, a view that quite a lot of things would need to be replaced. Yeah. Um, that, that included the fuel tanks, um, you know, the propeller, we, you know, really uncertain as to whether we'd be end up having to replace blades or significant parts of the hub or anything like that. So, you know, 
there was a bit of risk involved in it all, but at the end of the day, um, it, it made sense to me. And then we had um, a delegation from the Smith family, George, Robbie, uh, Joe, and the other sister, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, yeah. um, and a couple of other family members came up to Ahakia to have a look at us. Yep. Uh, I think that was all about whites of the eyes stuff. Right, yep, yep. And um, the base commander at the time came over and met them and said some nice words about us. So it all sort of um, made sense, uh, I think, for everybody. And George and I had a chat and we came to an arrangement and we purchased the Mustang. So that's really about as simple as it goes. Um, that's what happened. Uh, I remember signing the agreement with George on the bonnet of uh, Robbie's ute at Mapua. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, pretty pretty Kiwi style, if you like, in that sense. So yeah. uh, it was pretty low key. And then our next focus was moving the aircraft. And, you know, that wasn't as simple as it sounded because the moving the moving happened in two parts. First of all, we had to take all of the Mustang stuff that was there and cram it into a container. And that included several crates of stuff which we weren't terribly sure about what would be in there or was in there, you know, until we had a chance to look. And then um, that container left and headed up to Ahaki, and then we had the job of getting the Mustang out from behind the Mosquito. Right, yes. It was quite an exercise. And, you know, once again, uh, John Saunders and Mike Nichols led that exercise uh, with some really good helpers. Um, yeah. I remember Mitt Brereton, Ryan South, and Graham, Graham Andrew. They're all helping. Uh, Robbie and Joe were pitched in, and we're all helping. Yeah. Uh, once we got the aircraft out, um, we gave it a bit, of, bit of a clean. Everybody had to sit in it, and then we put it back in the shed and covered it up, waiting for, um, the exercise of moving it to a Hakia. And uh, Brian Harris went back down to uh, help or supervise loading it up on the flat deck truck. And next day it was in Palmerston North. All right. And there we go. So that was the start of the process. And I think it was August. I can't remember if it was August or September 2020 that it turned up at Ahakia ready to start. So at that point, how did you go about thinking about now we've got to restore this thing? Because it, it had had its wings cut off. Uh, yeah. when, it, when I left the Air Force um, and I mean that's a hell of a big job and, and none of you guys have worked on a Mustang before had you? Yeah but we hadn't worked on a Spitfire either you know at the end of the day <laughs> yeah. you can sit there and um, twiddle your thumbs going oh it's all too hard mm. um, or you can just get on with it um, expecting to make the odd mistake along the way but um, the, the, the nice thing about the Mustang in comparison to the Spitfire it's it was designed for production. Yes. So in many ways, it's it's designed for restoration. Uh, ah. The structure of the aircraft is very basic. And as a consequence, it's very, it's relatively easy to restore. I'm not minimizing the, the effort that goes in around the world restoring Mustangs, but it's a far simpler airplane to restore structurally than the Spitfire ever was. The Spitfire was a nightmare. Right. Right. Um, a good nightmare, but still a nightmare. Um, you know, the and basically, as we did with the Spitfire, we built jigs around the aircraft because it was original and straight. Yep. 
uh, and then we disassembled it and started working on every uh, key parts. You know, I mean, the fuselage structure is nothing like the Spitfire. You know, the Spitfire is made up of frames and stringers and longerons and all that stuff, whereas the Mustang's just four big longerons, a couple of sort of half frames and nice thick skins. Uh, right. So it's relatively simple and of course north american designed it for manufacture and, and in the process they made it easier to restore right right um you mentioned about the wings you know once again you know i think i remember some of the um early comments on your forum dave about the wings being you know what a you know what a huge undertaking it was but it's not really that bad um you know the Spitfire's got those incredibly complex squared tube multi-layer spars. Yeah. Whereas the Mustang's got some really thick sheet folded into a sort of like a flattened C shape. Okay. Yeah. And so you've got a front spar and a back spar, and each of those spars is uh, made up of two parts anyway. They're joined halfway out. Oh, right. Um, so, and they don't actually cut through the inner spars. <laughs> Although we replaced them all, so for odor guards, um, you know, folding up some new um, spars is just a day's work for them. You know, it's just what they do. Right, right. Um, yeah, we'd made a in in coming up with a a plan for the project. You know, we'd gone through, you know, because um, I think if, if as you will know, it sort of was pretty much the same team that did the Spitfire. Yes, um, I brought Pete Burgess on board, and he was the project leader. Uh, Joe, my son Joe, of course, is a licensed engineer now, and he was um, keen to be involved. Yep. And Brian Harris, who was involved in a lot of the certification work for the Spitfire. So we had three people that really knew what they were doing. Jim Garner was working part-time for us on the electrics, and David Thayer from Wanganui did a, a lot of the electrical and uh, avionics wiring for us as well. So, yeah, we had good people that knew what they were doing. Yeah, and you couple that with tremendous documentation from North American. You know the the North American uh, Mustang documentation is just superb. Okay, oh brilliant! Um, it's just incredibly helpful. You know, every subassembly's got a detailed, uh, exploded diagram showing how it all fits together and what the parts are. And whereas you know what's the Spitfire parts manual didn't have a picture in it. Yeah, right. Okay. Interesting. Just a whole list of numbers. So yeah, so I think we, we had and we had around nineteen thousand blueprints that we'd sourced. Uh digital the North American had um, microfilmed them. Okay. So we had really good drawings, um, nineteen thousand of them. And you've got like the Air Corps library, which has a good access to other ones that you mightn't have. Um and and lots of people in the US we found were keen to help, which was nice and keen to help with information and just answer any strange little questions that we had. People that are, you know, famous in the industry uh, were able to help us, which was really really a great uh, plus for us. Oh, that's great. I guess the Mustang does have the advantage that there's a lot of people out there who still restore them, and so there's there's not just the paperwork but there's a lot of experts out there that know all the inside knowledge of you know how they go together yeah well there's a whole industry in the u.s making new ones mm. it's probably not recognized that uh, a lot of the ones flying today have been built from new 
Uh, they've been assigned an identity and they've been probably painted up in some World War II scheme, but they've never existed before. Um, so I'm not sure how many a year would be produced new, but it's not a small number. Right. Um, so there's a whole industry around making brand new Mustang parts. Um, you know, you can, if you haven't got any wings, you can buy a wing kit. Right. Uh, if you haven't got a rudder, you can buy a rudder uh kit you know pretty much anything that you want we found we could get not that we needed a lot we found we could source it um pioneer uh in los angeles at chino had huge stock a stock of surplus mustang stuff and they seem to have pretty much everything yeah uh, people like cal pacific uh in up in um further north in california were making a whole lot of new stuff they effectively have the manufacturing authority for the Mustang. So you've got really no great drama um, finding stuff. You know, I'll give you a simple example of if it's not a bit off color, I hope it isn't. But um, in the aircraft, when we got it, it had the mounting bracket for the, the euphemistically named pilot's relief tube. Right. Yeah. But we didn't have the bit that went on the end of the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> but Pioneer had a, had one, so um, you know, we we not that we expected to be used, but we fitted that as well. So right, right. So just talking about the, the cockpit, you you've restored it to pretty much exactly how it would have been back in the nineteen fifties. Uh, very very accurate, isn't it? Well, we've restored it exactly as it was in nineteen forty five when it came out of the factory, and there's no right. reason not to because everything that was put in by the factory was in there. Yeah, uh, every conceivable thing, um, you know, and making the decision not to fit a second seat, rightly or wrongly, um, history will judge that one, um, yeah. meant that we had no reason to go away from what was done in the factory. Um, you know, the Mustang has a very sophisticated hot and cold air system for the pilot, and yeah. we've refitted all of that. Okay. which you couldn't really have done if you had another seat in the back. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, little things like that. And amongst all the stuff that John had collected was a modification kit to bring that whole system up to the latest standard. So um, we fitted all of that as well. So in terms of the pilot comfort, um, Sean, I think, is um, much better off in the Mustang than he was in the Spitfire. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. But um, I think going, going back to um, that planning phase, what, what I found with, uh, with, I suppose, with anything, any project, whether it's software or aeroplanes, is you've got to have a plan. And that yeah. plan has to try and encompass everything that you can think of, because otherwise you'll be constantly tripped up. Yeah. But what, when we looked at the aircraft, we sort of made the decision to divide it into four chunks. Well, I suppose more than four chunks, but let's just say four broad areas of work yeah uh, and we decided that three of those areas would get other people to do now the engine is a is a no-brainer we had worked with vintage v12s for the spitfire i'm very happy with what they'd done for us so we sent the engine off to them yep. probably the youngest engine they'd ever seen okay. um, the propeller we um got a recommendation to send it off to maxwell uh, aviation service up in Minnesota. And um, and then, of course, we made the very big decision to not 
overhaul the wings ourselves, but to send them off to Odegaards. Yeah. And I think that was um, that was a key factor in the speed at which we could complete the restoration because we took a couple of years' work uh, out of the project and gave it to Odegaards. And, um, you yeah, know, that was, that was a, a difficult decision because we could have done them. Uh, but we would be talking about uh, the Mustang being at Wanaka 2026. Right, right, gotcha. Uh, yeah, so, and and the whole process with Odegaards was um, excellent. You know, they, they, they you know, I've dealt with a lot of companies around the world remotely um, in business, and I thought Odegaards were one of the best I've ever dealt with in terms of uh, communication, keeping you informed, Um upfront about everything that was going to cost and all those sorts of things. So uh, it was it was a good it was a good uh, arrangement and uh, it produced a good set of wings for us, um, and you know allowed us to get to where we are today that much quicker. Right, right. Did you um, did you make any trips up to the US to to have a look at all the stuff being done? Or no, I didn't. That's one of the strange things about this project because of COVID coming right and plonk in the middle of it all. Right. Yeah. Um, I never saw any of the process. You know, I remember back to the Spitfire. I went to vintage V twelves four times. Oh, right. During yep. the engine process, um, and of course, in in the Spitfire days, I used to travel up to the UK three times a year for work. Yeah. Um, so you know, I saw a lot of the stuff that went into the Spitfire when I was haggling over it, but um, the Mustang never saw anything. You know, basically, the, they come and pick the container up, which had the wings and the propeller on it, and uh, two years later, or whatever it was, three, yeah, two years later, the container turned back up again with the wings all rebuilt and the propeller overhauled, and the <laughs> engine uh, disappeared off in a, uh, a wooden box and came back in a wooden box. Right. That must have been a bit like Christmas morning when they turned up. Yeah, I wasn't there. I missed the container. I was actually crook at the time. I was actually I was actually in the hospital. Oh, um, damn. <laughs> got pneumonia. So that was it sounds a bit like I've got it today, but I haven't. Um yeah, so I, I missed all of that. So I missed all the excitement, but um it was a bit of a nightmare anyway, trying to uh, deal with the shipping uh, at a time when everything was just totally disrupted. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, but you know, we, at the end of the day, you, those things, you've got some things in your control, some things out of your control, and you've got to focus on the ones which are in your control. Yes, yeah. So so that engine, is that the same engine that was uh, on that aircraft back when yep, it was in service? it's the same engine it came out of the factory with. So wow. um, Packard would have built that engine probably in – May or June 45, shipped it down to Dallas. They put it on the aeroplane, and it's still on the aeroplane. Wow, that's that's pretty special in itself, isn't and, it? And in the overhaul process, um, Jose Flores at um, Vintage V12's I mean, there was very little that they had to replace on it okay. um, because of corrosion or anything like that. So it's it's probably, you know, we're not 100% sure, but it'd be one of the very, very few Mustangs that's got its original factory engine untouched. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Did did the airframe suffer from any uh damage from birds or rats or anything like that in the ship? Oh, definitely from the rats. You know, there must have been, I don't know how many generations of Marpa rats had lived on top of, particularly the um the main fuselage longerons, the big extruded aluminium sections. Yeah. And they had they had left their calling card on those repeatedly. And of course that had promoted 
um, into granular corrosion on them. Right. Okay. Uh, we replaced all four of them anyway, but actually only two of them were damaged. Okay. But you just don't know uh, with that aluminium of that age. So we replaced all of the longerons anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that no, the sense. rats had, um, you know, even when we were disassembling it, we found a couple of rats and <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> gave them a decent burial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, it was um yeah, they've certainly done their damage. Um and of course humans have done a bit of damage as well, but yeah. um remarkably little really. So what would you estimate um with the skins, how many would be original skins on it um compared to how many did you replace? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, uh Dave. I didn't sort of um we tried to reuse any shaped sections yeah. um, because they're sort of integral, but a lot of the, like, you know, where the big holes were, we replaced all of that skin. Yeah. Because yeah. that's really thick skin there. It's incredibly thick. Um, but I couldn't, I, I wish I could tell you, we bought a lot of sheets, so we must have replaced quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Um, because with a stressed skin aircraft, and particularly the Mustang, which doesn't have much internal structure, the skins are critical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the skins are the structure, aren't they? Really? Yep. Yeah. More so on a Mustang than than anything I've seen, to be honest. Okay. Uh, and what about all the uh, the undercarriage um, assemblies? They're, they're all good. Yeah. Well, that, that's the interesting thing. We ended up with around, I think, um, we ended up with, I think, sixteen undercarriage pivots. Yeah. About 11 or 12, might have been 13 undercarriage legs, some of which were damaged. In other words, they'd had the bottom axles cut off to, for trailers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we've got, oh, I think we ended up with, uh, I think, 11 pivots. Okay. 10 out of the 11 um, passed all their crack testing. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so pretty incredible. And we've got a bunch of other stuff there, undercarriage stuff, left, right, and center. Um, you know, one of the things, you, which is an interesting comparison with the Mustang, we've got 11 firewalls, 11 Mustang firewalls. So we've actually got, if you like, the front firewall probably for 11 out of the 17 survivors. Wow. Okay. Uh, but unlike the Spitfire, where the firewall provides the identity, on a Mustang, it doesn't. So we've got 11 firewalls. <laughs> so yeah, you can yeah. Say, <laughs> they're just parts and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, they're just, they're just of interest. Yeah. So I guess John Smith must have been going around the answer apple yards and uh, what are called orchards and picking up all the bits and pieces left over uh, and just collecting the stuff, I guess, was it? I think he's. I think that's what he did because mm. um, certainly our scrap pile there, which is behind our container, is is just big chunks of Mustang, okay, um, of unknown identity, but obviously New Zealand ones. Um, and he just put them all in crates, you know. So and one of the crates when we got um, when when we got the aircraft to Ohaki, it was missing most of its pipes. Yeah, you know, we thought well that that was another thing we'd budgeted in. Um, but one of, when we opened one of the crates, it was full of pipes. Oh, right. And we thought, well, that's interesting. I bet you there's 20 of one and none of the other 19 and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But as it turned out, every pipe for the aircraft bar one was in that crate. Wow. 
So there's one replacement pipe covering the coolant system, the hydraulic system on that and on that aircraft. Wow, that's that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So it's that, got all of its original arteries and veins and um, all the big coolant pipes. Um, yeah, it was just amazingly near new condition. That was the that was the stunning part of it all. Is you open up a crate like that and think, well, we might find one or two in there, and then you find the whole damn lot. <laughs> yeah, incredible. The, the things that John Smith did was was just incredible, really. The the stuff he gathered and and the way he sort of looked after it and preserved it and um i mean that's for all of those aircraft the the, the main aircraft in his collection he, he had bits and pieces for everything didn't he boys and and i think last time we were there i mean just wandering around that property and you trip over bits um hmm. you know you trip over stuff and you know i think that was the, the the amazing thing of finding the remains of that second mosquito there yeah yeah that sort of thing um yeah there's just I think talking to Robbie the other day, I think they still find bits and pieces pop up and, you know, it's just um, probably go on forever. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, that's yeah, second... well, We've got so much stuff there that's not needed for the project that we've now got to sort out. You know, we've got a large quantity of stuff there that we've got to um, make some big decisions on. Okay, okay. So that you might be having a Mustang garage sale in the future. Yeah, well, I think we've, you know, with the stuff that we've got, which you could, would you consider Mustang remnants, which is not really going to, uh, you know, there, there might be enthusiasts in New Zealand that might want to support the work of the Biggin Hill Trust and and buy a bit of that for their garage or for their wall or something. But yeah, we've got, you know, from that property, we've got everything Mustang, and that included, you know, the remains of a couple of wings. Um, whole lot of stuff and and there's just boxes and boxes and boxes of it brilliant that's really good when everything was put back together and you're ready to push it out of the hangar and and uh you know start the engine how, how did that feel that must have been very satisfying yeah it is satisfying but i think you know you it, it's a bit um not an anticlimactic it's um it's just another step in a process that you have worked out and worked through mm -hmm. um, yep. so you know you know we knew from the spitfire experience that the engine wouldn't start first time it was going to take a bit of coaxing because everything dries out the carburetor dries out it hasn't be, hasn't been run for a year yeah um you know so there was a bit of coaxing to get it started but brian managed that really well and got it all started and running and and then it was just sort of um, once it ran for the first time, it was just sort of a series of nice little steps, uh, one thing at a time. You know, getting onto the high power running, which was pretty uh, scary, yeah. Um, and then you know, picking the day when we were ready to fly. So it all sort of happened in a in a relatively short period of time. And you had chosen uh, Sean Perrot to step away from the Spitfire and into the Mustang and become the Mustang pilot. No, no, he had chosen that. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Sean's, um, Sean and I have worked together for nearly 15 years now. And, mm. um, you know, yep. he, he's an incredibly good pilot. You, there's no, <laughs> you can't say anything other than that. He's an exceptionally no. good pilot. Yeah. And he's flown the Spitfire, I think, beautifully for the last 15 years. And so when the Mustang yep. came along, uh, right at the early days when we just purchased it, I, I just said to him, "Well, you, you choose." 
you want to fly the Spitfire or fly the Mustang? And he went away and thought about it, and he just came back and said he'll fly the Mustang. Oh, right. Okay, so brilliant. There's no reason why he wouldn't test fly it as well. Yeah. Um, so it's just a natural process. And, of course, that's opened up the opportunity for Stu Anderson um, to uh, fly now, fly the Spitfire. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, two, two exceptionally good pilots and Paul Stockley, who will go back on to flying the Avenger, another exceptionally good pilot. And uh, yeah, just what gives me a great deal of satisfaction is that when the people see the aircraft, they're seeing them as best as they possibly could be with, you know, top-notch pilots. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. I, I agree. Uh, I mean, you just, you cannot fault uh, Sean's display. It's always magic. Yeah. Um, and I think Stu will be... Um, very people will be very pleased with um, what he does in the Spitfire too. It's also very smooth and graceful, and of course he's um, he's able to take advice from Sean. So yes, you know, you'll see. Hopefully at um, Wanaka, people will see both of them in their natural element. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so did Sean uh, go and fly any other Mustangs beforehand? Did he go up to Auckland? No, or... no? no, he. Um, I mean, he, Sean's been involved in the project from day one in the sense, and he and I went down and did an inspection of it, um, you yeah. know, just from a pilot's perspective. And um, he's uh, he's helped out with the project, uh, a number of um, tasks on the project. He's been able to put some time and after work on for us. And he's just very involved in the aircraft and knows it pretty well. Um, yes, yes. So yeah. I think... And and you combine that with his level of experience and uh, flying natural flying ability, then hopping in a Mustang is really just another day in the office. I think. Yes. Yeah. Um. So the he's been how how many hours has he flown on it now? Oh, wish you told me you can ask me that question. He's flown <laughs> it about seven hours now, I think. Okay. Yeah, he did yeah. five hours test flying and he's flown it, uh, yeah, probably another two hours. He flew it the other day when I was away, so probably seven hours, maybe seven and a half. Okay, yep. Yeah, I've, I've seen a number of times it's come up on your Facebook page that he's flying and doing fly pass here. And yeah, it was funny because I was it. away last week and they, um, the Spitfire and the Mustang flew in formation at Ohakia, but nobody seemed to film it. <laughs> nobody, oh, okay. <laughs> nobody, nobody caught it, so uh, I haven't seen it myself. Um, I, I, but, I hope that I hope that Ohakia is not getting blasé about having those two fighters in the air. <laughs> oh no, I think I think um, no, it's just more the people around who who uh, who position themselves around Ohakia to. Um, oh right, yeah, gotcha. The watch yep. stuff. Uh, yep. It's not so friendly anymore because, of course, one of the great viewing points um has now been closed off so. oh okay right yep that's a shame yep yeah so um you've got wanaka coming up and hopefully all three of you your big warbirds will be going down is the is the harvard going down as well no i don't believe so i don't think there's any plan to take the harbour down um you know three aircraft is is a quite a big workload as it is um, yes yep yeah, so our focus at the moment, we've got the Spitfire serviceable, we've got the Mustang serviceable. Um, our real focus at the moment, of course, is getting the Avenger uh, finished off. Um, and you know, every day we get another step closer. Uh, so I think we're in we're in a, we're in good shape for that as long as something totally unexpected doesn't bite us. Um, yes. yeah. 
And of course, we've got um, a reasonable amount of flying in the Avenger to be done to run the engine in as well before Wanaka. So right, yeah, it's going to have to do a bit of flying um, around Ohakia for a few hours. Okay. A few bombing missions on my range. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll follow the same pattern we did with the Mustang, which is fly fly in the overhead for the first couple of hours or hour, and then it gives um, Splash Stockley the opportunity to then to just go and fly it and run it in. Right, fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, it's like any radial engine; you have to be careful how you run them in. Yeah. Uh, not being an engineer, I don't understand all these things. But if you don't do it properly, you can glaze all the cylinders. Oh, okay. Yep. And then you've got a basically a useless engine. Um, so we've got to be like we did with the Harvard. We followed a process for running that in, and that's going beautifully. Yep. Um, it's uh, I think just completed 30, 30 hours on the new engine. Oh, good. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, we'll follow the same process with the Avenger. It's a bigger beast. Um, but it'd be good to have it back in the air. I think it's been just on eighteen months. Wow, is it really? Gosh. I think so. I'm not 100 yeah. percent sure. Yeah. I should I should look it up. No, I guess it probably has actually. It's, is it a new engine or yes, a new engine? Yeah, okay. Um we work with um a company in the US Chester Roberts Supply Company, a bit of a right cyclone specialist, and he had one in a can that had never been used. Oh and um we basically assessed it and um considered all the options and and one of the problems you have with all of these old airplanes now is is the metal in them is really old yes and you just don't know for sure what condition it's in uh you know we had had in the 10 years we'd had the avenger we'd had two cylinder failures the last one the last one of course was um quite severe and we decided not to pursue with the engine it'd been overhauled in 1984 mm -hmm. But yep. we didn't quite know what had been done. You know, the records were very much a, a single sort of loose-leaf form that said overhauled in accordance with manufacturer's recommendations, but you just don't know what yeah. had been done. And you've got 80-year-old pistons that might have done thousands and thousands of hours. Um, so we took the opportunity to pick up this one um, and have it completely overhauled by Blakey Engine Service and uh, in Texas. And... Um, yeah, we're very hopeful that we've got a good um, good outcome and it'll keep Plonky flying for many years ahead. We've also taken, um, as we've had Plonky over the, over the years, we've done little bits of restoration on it. Yeah. Um, and what we've done this time is while we've been waiting for the engine is we've overhauled all the major hydraulic actuators. Okay. And replaced all of the hoses on the aircraft. Um, so that's quite a big job in itself. So all the wing fold, undercarriage retracts, tailwheel retract, all of that stuff has been overhauled. Okay. Um, and, you know, we're kind of hopeful that that will be another factor in keeping Plonky flying uh, for many years ahead. Fantastic. It's a, it's a wonderful aircraft. And as you know, I've got a real soft spot for it. I, I worked on it uh, briefly when I was in the Air Force. We were the first um, team that put it into the plonky colours, the RNZF colours. So, yep, I remember um, the photos you sent me, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'll, and I'll actually, just... also, I acknowledge, too, all the advice you gave from your, your experience on that at the time. So uh, um, I think you got a heads up that we were going to bring it to New Zealand. So, Yes. 
Yeah, no, that was. Uh, yeah, I like Clonky. Were... I don't know. Um, people sort of it's, the Avengers are very expensive airplanes. You know, they cost you left, right, and center. They cost you in petrol. They cost you in oil. They cost you in maintenance. Yeah. You now you have to be a bit of a um, tiger for punishment, I think, to <laughs> keep one yeah. running. But um, I think they're an honest um, air airplane, and I think they're a significant part of the RNZF history. Absolutely, absolutely. They've got a real presence too. The the sound they make, they're just a huge, massive presence when it's uh, you know displaying at air show or even yeah, just and and. I guess Splash will come up with his own way if he, he's, he hasn't had the chance to display it yet. So right. uh, we'll see what he comes up with in terms of uh, presenting it to the the public. Um, yeah. 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 So that's um, that's something I'm not quite sure what the program for Wanaka is and what it'll be doing, but I know the Heritage Flight uh, program will be quite interesting in its own right. So. Mm, yes. Yeah. Uh, of course, something else that I'm looking forward to at Wanaka is actually seeing your Mustang with Graham Bethel's Mustang together and two two Mustangs in the uh, Territorial Air Force colours. That's going to be quite interesting. Yes, I don't actually know whether they'll fly together. As I said, I haven't um, seen a programme. Right. Um, and, and our aircraft go down with sort of two hats on. Uh, they go down as Air Force Heritage Flight. Yeah. And the Air Force Heritage Flight stuff is held in the military segment. Yes, yep. You know, there's quite a... Um, deliberate now if you like a, a um, separation of civil and military in that military hour yes yeah um so they will operate as heritage flight and then the warbirds over wanaka organizers will have other requirements for them as well where they will not be heritage flight so what what that consists of and how they fit everything into their program and obviously we've just had the announcement of um the great announcement of the mosquito being there Yes. So there's a lot of aircraft going to be there and a lot of stuff to um, to fit in, I guess, and what flies with what and when and how. I don't, honestly don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. It's keeping them serviceable and getting them down there. It, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to this air show. And um, it, it, you mentioned the Mosquito. That's it, It's really interesting that it'll be making its debut and your Mustang will be making its debut and they're both, genuine 1940s and 50s RNZF aircrafts that actually yeah, both... I'm, you know, there's a possibility they might be parked together. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, you know, the, the layout's changed a little bit down there. Um, so I'm not quite sure what um, our aircraft will be down the RNZF end of that parking area. And I think the Mosquito will be down there as well. So if that happens, we may well um, deliberately try and put the two of them together, both cool. silver, I think, and as I understand it. So... Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and um, you know the mosquito's got a special place in my heart because I certainly think the the greatest aviation experience I've ever had was that flight at Masterton in the mosquito with Keith Skilling. So yeah, yeah, you can't I can't top that. <laughs> I, I remember I was in the crowd watching you get out of that after the uh, after your flight, and the look on your face was just absolutely brilliant. You you definitely loved that flight. Yeah, oh, it was it, it was just a. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just a once in a lifetime opportunity, and you know, it sort of brought home to me what a great low level aircraft it would have been because you're sitting in that seat and you're looking out the front, and there's nothing out the front but outside, and you've yep. got these two great big Merlins protruding in front of you either side. But in fact, the head on view is just remarkable, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great, great airplanes. 
Yeah, and nobody was shooting at me too, which <laughs> made it a bit easier. Yeah, that does make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great aeroplane. It's a wonder. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that Warren Denham and his team have now produced four of them is just, to me, is just um, beyond belief, to be honest. Mm, I know absolutely. a lot of it harks back to Glenn Powell's great work, but um, you got to give Warren and his team the credit of producing four uh, restored mosquitoes in X number of years. Yeah, exactly. And they're working on number five as well, so yep. which is incredible. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so hopefully um, we'll see that one before it heads off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess one last question. And that is probably the question you don't want to hear, but have you got any plans for future projects? No, I don't at this stage, Dave, but I said that when I'd finished the Spitfire. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of um, aged about 20 years at the end of the Spitfire project, so I said I'd never do another one, and there you go, done a Mustang. Right. Um, I don't think so. I'm, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, um, people forget sometimes that, you know, restoring an aircraft is only part of the picture. Yeah. Uh, operating them, insuring them, uh, and all those other things um, are major undertakings. So I think you've got to be a little bit careful. Um, you know, got to do justice to what we've got. We've got, you know, we've really got, I think, probably the two best single-seat fighters of World War II, Spitfire and a Mustang, sitting in the same hangar. So I think that's not a bad life's work. So <laughs> that's pretty good. That's yeah, that's yeah. pretty damn good. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think um, I don't see uh, I don't see the enthusiasm to uh, embark on another one. To be honest, um, and yeah, you never know what presents itself as an opportunity. But I, I think at this stage we've got you know just keeping. Um, the, the four warbirds flying is, is a big is a big undertaking and there's a lot of work goes on behind the scenes that people at the air show never see yes absolutely um i'm not saying they don't appreciate it but there's a lot of work that you don't see and um you know because they're old airplanes there's always that risk that something will go wrong yes yeah i mean even just preparing for an air show there's a hell of a lot of work that people don't realize they just they just think you turn up and do your display and there's yeah, well, so, there's so, so much, much more. stuff we have to take down, and it's, it's, it's the same story. Once you get to Wanaka, Ohaki is a long way away. Mm, yep. um, it's only a two-hour flight down, but you know, if you don't have what you need, uh, you can turn a, a lovely aeroplane into a static exhibit. Yeah, uh, exactly. For a couple of days. So, yeah, we've got to um, make sure uh, the aircraft uh, um, is prepared as we can possibly make them for what they need to do over the weekend down there. Yes, yeah. Because we don't want, I mean, the last thing we want is to disappoint anybody. Well, I mean, I can understand that, but, you know, I, I don't think you're going to disappoint. You're going to be talk of the town, that's for sure, with that Mustang. So it's going to be quite a thrill to see that. Yeah, it's funny with the Mustang, which is a bit different from the Spitfire, which you know, Dave, because you've been there a couple of times, but... With the Spitfire, you can stand on the ground and look into the cockpit and see mm. all the work that's been done. With the Mustang, you can't. Yeah, It's too high. Um, and because we've put all of the equipment back into the Mustang, there's all sorts of stuff on the floor, little switches and for the ventilation system. We're not going to have too many people climbing in and out of it and right, smashing right. stuff. So yeah. um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not quite sure uh, how people will best see what we've done in the cockpit, but um, we've put a few photos up so I think people can see, and we're going to have all of the gun bays. Uh, the, well, the gun bays are all fitted out at the moment, but we'll have all the ammunition in there, and uh, we can have those open on the flight line. So. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll present it as best as we can, and it's um, to me, it's a... Uh, Every time I walk into the hangar and see it, it's because uh, it's, you know, the hangars, Dave, as you walk into our Big and Hill hangar, walk through yep. the door right there in front of you now. So, oh, right. Excellent. Yeah. You'll have to come down and have another visit. I will. I will. I haven't even been down since you got the Mustang there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I need, I need to come back. Yeah. Um, well, we're feeling a bit neglected. <laughs> well, that will happen. It will happen. Yeah. No, it's. Um, it's just remarkable to walk in and see it. And, you know, as I said, it flew, uh, I think it maybe I can't remember, it flew once or twice last week when I was away. And, yeah. um, you know, it's just a bit more routine now. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite quite cool that you have uh, you just can roll it out and take it flying. It's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And the funny thing is some of the detail work we've done, you'll never see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but every single serial plate that was on the aircraft is back on there, even though you can't see them in some cases. You know. Okay. Actually, that's one thing I meant to ask you. Have you had any um, RNZF Mustang veterans uh, visit or have a look at it? No. Um, and once again, I think, um, you know, you've got to put that in age perspective. Mm. Um, you know, the even a pilot in 1955 that was 25 is now nearly 90. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, um, not, I'm not, a, I'm not aware in my time that there's been anybody come that was, uh, had flown by the RNZF Mustangs. People have talked, I think you've talked about people being up North and somewhere down mm. south and all that, but I guess they're not as mobile as they were. No, well, that, that's the problem. The Facebook page and being able to follow it anyway. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean that that is the problem. There there were a few around while you're restoring it. Um, one of them, uh, Ron Hildreth, worked on that aircraft as a mechanic, but um, he's since passed away, unfortunately. But he couldn't have got down to a Harkia because he was pretty immobile. Um, yeah, and I think that's the reality of that generation. Even though it's ten years after the war, I mean. That yep. generation is also disappearing now, and um, yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. So we don't have that um, connection with the ones that flew it, but I guess we hopefully have that connection with all the ones that followed who flew yep. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, true. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you know, look at the mosquito too. Uh, I've been asked to see if there's any mosquito veterans left because when the first one flew in 2012. I managed to get about 36 mosquito veterans, uh, mostly air crew, but some of them were ground crew. And now I think there's only one pilot left yeah. in New Zealand and um and a couple a couple of ground crew. So, you know, that it's it's sad. They're all disappearing, but it's I'm sure it must be a comfort to them that people were remembering what they did and and their aircraft are getting flying again. Yes, I re I remember. I mean, as an example, I remember when uh Guy Stevens and I landed at Kerikeri in Plonky, mm. uh, having come down from Norfolk. And there were a couple of older gentlemen on the fence there. And, of course, um, one of the problems was we had to go through all the ag um, spray and all that stuff and go and do all the paperwork and all that. By the time we come back out, they'd gone. 
Right, right. Somebody mentioned later on there were a couple of guys that had flown the RNZF uh, Avengers when they were target tugs. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's once again, that's 2012. So that's, you know, 11 years ago, 12 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, that, you know, they may have been well advanced in years then. And of course, by now, well, I don't know. But um, they were on the fence, apparently, and I, we never got a chance to say hello. Yeah, it's a shame. Mm. But at least, at least they did get to see the plane. <laughs> they probably thought we were pretty rude because um, when, when we parked up there, we had to stay in the plane for 15 minutes, having the agricultural guy just threw a couple of cans of spray in and said, spray all around the plane and stay in there. Oh, right. Okay. And then, <laughs> yeah, then we had to uh, go from the plane straight to um, their little office there to do the um, customs and immigration right, stuff. Right. And so by the time we come out, those two guys are gone. They probably oh, right. quite rude and wouldn't talk to them. <laughs> That's a shame. So we didn't have any choice. Yeah. So if if you're out there listening, he wasn't being rude. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I was quite keen to go out and have a yep to them, but um, yeah. you know, having survived the Pacific, uh, the Tasman crossing, I was quite pleased to talk to anybody. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> you probably would have been slightly deaf too after that long flight. Oh man, that was yeah. And I had some um, noise cancelling headphones, but they must have got a static build up. Oh. about halfway in each leg and they started going all crackly and you know? so I had to turn them off and then I got yeah it, it's an, as you know Dave it's an incredibly noisy aeroplane yes very very yeah um it's a nice noise but not inside no. <laughs> uh, yeah so it's um yeah it's hopefully um back in the air not too long away excellent well looking forward to it thank you very much Brenda and I, I'm so pleased to have you on as our guest for the 300th episode no problem at all, Dave, any time. And if um, people have got any questions, they can always post them up on, on your forum or um, on the Facebook page or whatever they wish to do. And yes. we're always happy to answer as best as we can. Brilliant. Well, thanks again. And if anybody's down at Wanaka, you know, come up to the fence and say hello. And always happy to uh, Sean, Stu and uh, Splash will be happy to have a yap um, and tell you about the planes. So feel free. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'll see you there. <laughs> okay, Dave. Catch you later. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.